everybody, we're in Revelation chapter 8. This is part one. And uh, want to announce a couple things before we get started. Brother, Brother Justin, come up. Tomorrow night, beginning tomorrow night, what is it? What, August 7th. August 7th, tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Uh, Brother Justin Nielsen, he is going to be leading a recovery group. Uh, and he has skill and insight. He has a heart for this. And uh, if you have, in fact, I talked to a guy this morning who's going to be here. And just last week stopped a substance and is after years. And so he's going to come. Cool. And he didn't even know what was happening. Cool. So uh, tomorrow night, 6 p.m. here, recovery group with Justin Nielsen. Thanks, cool. brother. Thank you. I like your shirt. Yep. Thanks, um, also on Sunday, August 20th, August 20th, a Sunday, we're going to have an open water, hot dog, barbecue, chips. Patrick will be here. Yes, sir. And uh, uh, that's from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. a Sunday. So if you want to be baptized, uh, we do those occasionally. And usually we have, so we have some people coming from Arizona to get baptized. And you can bring someone to baptize you or someone here, whatever you want. We'll have the font, Jesus' name. We'll get it going. And then finally, on a Sunday night, our first time, October 1st, we're going to have a concert here with Adams Road, and uh, they will be performing prior to them an hour before. Uh, the refreshments will be served, and the McCraney sisters, Mallory Cassidy, probably not Delaney, right? Shh, don't know if she'll be here. They'll be singing the Word of God, uh, so they do that for campus. All of that coming up. Just wanted to get it out of the way. Let's uh, welcome everybody who's on YouTube, Facebook, our online archives, and especially those who are here in the heated church studio. If you haven't been with us, we pray. We sing the Word of God, set to music. We sit for a couple minutes in silence. We come back, and we will pick up talking about uh, Revelation. Okay. Lord, we, uh, we pause and we thank you and love you and seek you and want to grow in our faith and in our love for you and others. We pray that you will continue to guide us and direct us, move us according to your spirit, to your truth. We talk about things today, some, much of it in Revelation, we're not certain. So I make a lot of mistakes. And uh, that comes with being human, but your spirit doesn't. So we pray that you will open up our eyes and ears to hear what you want us to and to forget everything else and help those who are struggling in the faith. Bless Justin as he does his uh, recovery group tomorrow night that he'll be uh, able to have your spirit and help people who are seeking. And uh, we just love you, Lord, and say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Revelation uh, incorporates a um, English rule that they call recapitulation. And when we read it, we want to think of the book as being chronological, starting at point A and everything it says being in order down to Z, and then there it's all laid out that way. There is some of that, but the better way, in my opinion, to see the book of Revelation is that it presents something and then it will recapitulate that same thing and then it will do it again. So you might see what it talks about with the seven seals, similar to what it talks about with the seven trumpets, similar to what it talks about with the seven vials. There's, it's like a chess game is being played on this one and all the pieces are the same as the second one and this one, but they just are reminding us, reminding the seven churches what is going to happen. 
Last week, we introduced the seven trumpets, having already covered the seven seals. They give a little bit more depth about what's going to happen. And I said last week that it's going to be difficult to explain how much of this applies to that day and age, that it could be that it's the teaching of this trumpets that I say, no, nah, it's all future, because it says certain things that are troubling in the text. Um, one last thing before we go on and read the text for today. Mary and I have been watching a show uh, that's on uh, Netflix called Vikings. And they just recently had an episode where as they go to war, they're trying to trick their enemy and they do it through a series of blowing through a horn. And they blow through the horn once or twice, and it signals the armies to do one thing. And they blow through several other times to signal another thing. But it's all through this horn that they are communicating to all the soldiers. So that all plays out into what's happening here in Revelation chapter um, 8. And let's just read through what it says. Now, as we read this again, it's 12 verses. You're going to say, wow, that doesn't sound like it's possible for any of that to happen. And then I'm going to approach it and explain to you uh, what the Bible says about some of these things. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. This is the last of the seals of, to be opened. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given to him much incense that he should offer it up with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came up with the prayer of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake. And the seven angels, which had seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. Now, I'm going to stop there. We're not going to read the rest of it. Let's just cover those first six verses. And what we have here is a heavenly picture. We've talked about the first six seals. Uh, chapter 7 was a, a break between them. And now the seventh seal has opened. And the seventh seal contains a description of what the seven trumpets are about, all right? So last week I suggested that chapter 8 and 9 were written to cause me great consternation because I didn't see how they could be explained in fulfilled prophecy. And I anticipated uh, when I began going through it on Monday morning that I'm going to have to look at the futurist, the historist, the, all the, the four different views, the preterist, and the idealist and see what is going on with these different views to explain this. Um, but then I thought I would take the approach of I'm going to look at the preterist view first and see what it says. And I ask God, you know, and I'm not saying this is uh, infallible, but I say, you know, help me understand this. And I found some great solace looking at the historical record and looking at the Bible to explain what is actually going on with these each trumpet. So let's work through this chapter really quickly and looking at the Greek. In chapter 8, 
which describes the first four trumpets that will sound. Do 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 do. Something happens. Do 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 do. Something else happens. Just like in that in that that show, the Vikings. Well, when it says something happens on the earth in chapter eight, earth is always gahay. Gahay means the land. It does not say. And when this was thrown down on the cosmos. So we can start off with that. And we can say, listen, this is really important because we know that this is speaking to a geographical area. So when we read that a third of the trees and a third of the fish and a third of the men died, it's not cosmos. It's the, earth, the, the land in a specific area, specifically the area of the seven churches to which this revelation is given that helps us because when i was reading it and i just read the earth honestly i thought how can we how, how can this be you know a, a third of the uh, of the earth dies that would be something remarkable that would be in history i mean tacitus or suetonius or any of of the uh, roman historians or other historians would write we had a calamity you know no so now that helps by looking at the greek there's that. Let's talk briefly about the wrapping up of Jerusalem for a minute. Now, Jerusalem has a very interesting history as to where it came from, how David made it the, his seat, and how he took it over from the Jebusites and it became David's city of peace. But we're not going to talk about how Jerusalem became Jerusalem. I want to pick it up uh, during the years of Alexander the Great. All right? So we're talking about 400, 500, 300 BC. When Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire, Jerusalem and Judea fell under Greek control. And that meant under great Hellenistic influence, which means the food they ate, the way they dressed, the way they thought, influenced the people who lived in Judea. In 198 BC, and I know I'm not using the proper politically correct uh, BCE and all the stuff they used to I say BC and, and AD before Christ and after his death even though that's not what it means but I, I, let's just use those that there was a, a guy named Ptolemy Sauter he was the fifth Ptolemy he lost Judea and Jerusalem to a group called the Seleucids under the direction of a guy named Antiochus the Great stuff you may or may not even care about. During this time, many Jews had become Hellenized. They had adopted the Greek ways, and they tried to fully Hellenize Jerusalem. And this led to a rebellion that took place. A certain family rose up and said, we don't like this Greek influence coming in to our lives. We are Jews. We speak Hebrew. We believe in one God. We don't like the Greeks. And so these guys were, they have a long Jewish name, Matayahu ben Yohanan, but they were also known as Maccabee, M-A-K-A-B-I, and we call them the Maccabees, the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabees rose up and they warred against uh, Jerusalem becoming the capital then of what's called the Hasmonean Empire, and that was for 103 years the Hasmonean Empire ruled. Well, there's a whole story about the Maccabeans ruling during this time, but long story short, there came a time 
when two Maccabean rulers over Judea couldn't manage it. And they went to Rome and they said, help us. And that introduced the Roman Empire into this vicinity. This is how suddenly the Romans are over the city of Jerusalem. Then in 37 uh, uh, be years before Christ, there's a guy named Herod the Great. Now we're starting to get into biblical narrative. Herod the Great, he captured Jerusalem in what was known as the 40-day siege. And that ended Hasmonean rule altogether. And Herod ruled the providence of Judea as a kind of a client king of the Roman Empire. And he rebuilt the second temple, and he did a number of things that were apparently good. He also did some horrible things, and he started to mint coins that were about Jerusalem, about Israel, and Pliny the Elder, he's a historian, he wrote of Herod's achievements, and he says, quote, the most famous by far of the eastern cities, uh, and not only of the cities of Judea, is Jerusalem. It became a star place. Uh, the Talmud uh, says, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his or her life. So this is all pre-Christ. And even though the temple of Herod wasn't finished until after Christ was born. The Roman historian Tacitus said, Jerusalem is the capital of the Jews. In it was a temple possessing enormous riches. So we tend to think of the temple, you know, kind of like a stone place that was dusty and there, you know, it was just a building, but it had a lot in it, a lot of riches. Well, Herod also built up Caesarea, which replaced Jerusalem as the capital of the Roman providence, uh, province of Judea. 6 AD, right? So Jesus is probably about 10 years old, according to most critical uh, analysis of Jesus' birth. 6 AD, he's probably 10 years old. Following Herod's death, Judea and the city of Jerusalem came under the direct Roman rule of prefects and procurators and these, all these different uh, titles that the Romans had. And Herod's descendants remained the nominal kings over all of that area. And this backdrop that I just gave you is bringing us to the beginning of the end, okay? The end of all things, as Jesus talked about, the end that Paul said was on its way, the end that uh, uh, Revelation says is coming quickly, seven times in the book itself, quickly, quickly, quickly. The, all this backdrop is bringing forward the end, which began with a revolt by the Jewish people themselves in 66 AD, okay? So 66 AD would probably be about 36 years after Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, uh, a generation, 40 years will not pass before all these things that I've just told you will come about. The signs increase with intensity, and you'll see when we study, as we did when we studied the seals, when we studied the trumpets, and when we studied the vials, there's an intensity of those three layers, even though they correspond with each other, each one unveils a new intensity, which Jesus said there was not a time and there never will be a time where the horrors will be so bad as this period of time. Um, well, the destruction began because of the Jews. Understand that they were under Roman authority and they started to think, 
we can take on the government. We can take on the Roman Empire. And quite frankly, they did a pretty darn good job of it for quite a while. Uh, they kept the Roman armies of Titus at bay for quite a while because of that Temple Mount. Uh, in 66 AD, the Jewish population decided, listen, we're sick of being under the, 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 th the thumb of Rome. And so the first Jewish-Roman war, known as the Great Revolt by most historians, began. And it originated simply because of ethnic tensions between the Romans and the Jews. This was the Jews' problem with almost everybody. We are superior. You are not. We have the true God. You do not. We are washed and holy. You are not. And so, therefore, we are going to revolt against you. And after it started off as an ethnic tension, it escalated to, to anti-taxation uh, things. And we can see a lot of the similar stuff going on in our world today. There's nothing new under the sun. And then pretty soon the, the Jews of Judea started attacking Roman citizens. So when Rome hears, remember we've talked so many times about in Rome you don't mess with their citizens. That includes Paul. He used his Roman citizenship to, to help him out. Well, when Rome starts hearing our citizens are being attacked, that's like us hearing that an American is being attacked in, in, in some country. That gets our ire up. Those are our people. You're hurting our people. So Rome did not put up with it at all. And I really don't know what those Jews could have been thinking. I, I, it just astounds me that they think they can take on the Roman Empire, but they did. In response, the Roman governor named Florus, he plundered the Jewish temple. This is the beginning. This is still 66, 67, 68, all in this area. And he said the money is going to be used for the, uh, the emperor and he launched a raid into the city and arresting numerous senior leaders of the Jewish party. This prompted more wide-scale rebellion by the Jews and the Roman military garrison of Judea quickly came in, but it was overrun by the Jews. They were having successes in beating back the smaller armies that were in position to govern them. And uh, when it was clear that the rebellion was absolutely getting out of control, Cestius Gaius Gallus uh, he was the general of Syria for the Roman army, brought in the Syrian army. They were known as Legion 7 Fulminata. That is very important when we translate it later on when we get deeper into the book. And they were there to restore order and revolt. Well, guess what? Uh, what, ha what that Legion Fulminata did is echoed by what Jesus said was going to be signs of the end in Matthew 24. And that's a historical things we can read about through Josephus. But in, in spite of their initial power from Rome, this leader of the Syrian army coming in and trying to create peace, they were ambushed and they were beat by Jewish rebels called, uh, in a battle called Battle of Beth Horon. Uh, 6,000 Romans were massacred. So when the nation believes that God is behind them, when we go to war against another nation, we have always had victory when we have trusted this God, and they're having victories against these Roman armies that are coming, even from Syria, they're like, we can't be touched. So we're not surrendering, and we're gonna keep fighting the battles. Well, that was the death knell. They had put, they had put Christ to death, and he said, it's going to come upon you. Oh, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you, but you would not. 
And, you know, how are you going to escape the judgment that's going to fall upon you? Well, during 66 AD, there was established something called the Judean Free Government. And it was formed in Jerusalem, and the high priest, uh, Annas ben Annas, he, uh, with a guy named Yosef Ben-Gurion, he was uh, another prominent leader. They had everything kind of working under this Judean free government, 66 AD. And uh, Rome says, okay, we need to do something more serious. So there's a guy named Vespasian. And he's an unassuming, actually kind of good uh, Roman general, uh, but very experienced. And he is assigned, go there and crush this rebellion. And he had a son whose name was Titus, who went in with him, and he was appointed as second in command. And remember, we've, we've said how Josephus, a Jew, prophesied that Vespasian was going to become the emperor. And that would, that would almost be like saying, I would, could become the president of the United States now. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, I mean, he was in the Roman body politic, but he was so far afield that for Josephus to prophesy you're going to be the emperor was just stupid. And yet he became the emperor. And so because he was the, uh, became the emperor, he remembered Josephus and he said, listen, Jewish historian, travel with us as we go in and we control this situation and we take care of what is going on there and you record everything that you see that's where we get the secular history to verify what's happening and how we can correlate it now with the book of revelation so uh vespasian and his son they avoid a direct attack they don't go after jerusalem it's too fortified they say, let's go and we'll hit all the surrounding areas that are not enforced and we'll take control of them first. So they start uh, heap, heaping uh, measures of destruction and control strongholds to the population. And within several months, Vespasian and Titus took over major Jewish strongholds in Galilee and they finally ever under, uh, they overran most of it. And driven from Galilee, there was a whole bunch of zealots hiding out there and all the zealots from Galilee and thousands of refugees flooded to the one place that was not being attacked. That was Jerusalem. So now Jerusalem, kind of a free Judean government place, is full of all the outstanding zealots. It's like suddenly the point of the mountain releasing all the criminals and all of them coming to Salt Lake and getting involved in current affairs. I mean, they, they came in, and it, what it did was it caused tremendous warfare, internal warfare. Josephus reports that it was the internal fighting between the habitant, inhabitants of Jerusalem that brought them down. It was not necessarily the Roman government coming in and having victory. They certainly finished the job, but it was the internal fighting between all of the factions that caused it to fall. And... Um, A guy named Simon Bar-Giora uh, commanded 15,000 militiamen uh, into Jerusalem and to stand against the zealots. And then they took over much of the city. Bitter infighting lasted through the year 69. So what's happened is we have a place that's protected from the Roman attack. But while they're inside there, they're just eating each other alive. And this was all the stuff that uh, Jesus prophesied of and Josephus wrote about, famine 
And remember, they cut off the food supply and they cut off everything. So it became like this uh, cauldron of utter disaster. And uh, Vespasian then in, is called to Rome in the year 69, and he is made the emperor. And when he leaves, his son Titus says, I'm going in. We're going into that, that, that hotbed, and we're going to finish this nation off once and for all. And so there were two walls of Jerusalem were breached. It took three weeks for the Roman army to breach those th uh, two of the three walls. The third wall was so heavy and impenetrable, they, they, they almost gave up. They couldn't get through it. Finally, after uh, I don't know how long it was, they broke through the third and thickest wall and followed a seven-month siege, and the food supply is gone, and that was introduced us to the final end of that full biblical age. From Genesis to Revelation, it's wrapped up, and these trumpets are representing the actual trumpets in heaven that relate to the Jewish way of calling things to happen, and to the Romans on earth, when they would call their armies to go and do things, these trumpets are related to when it blows, this is going to happen. And just as a side note, I'm not going to carry on any further with Jerusalem. A guy named Hadrian in the second century, he rebuilt Jerusalem as a pagan city. And what Hadrian built is known today as Old Jerusalem. I've never been there, but if you go there, there's a part that's old. Hadrian built it for pagan worship. And from there on, there's been all these political battles of who gets it and why and all that stuff. But bottom line, I believe God sealed his thumb on it in 70 AD and said, Jesus told you what's going to happen. Here it is. Uh, he renamed it Aelia Capitolina in 35 uh, AD and 135 AD, excuse me. So in accordance with the content of Revelation 8, the Roman assault on Jerusalem begins around the Feast of Trumpets. Did you hear that? The Roman assault on Jerusalem began on the celebrated holiday of the Jews called the Feast of Trumpets. And uh, therefore, we have the seven trumpets of Revelation involved in the beginning of the Roman Jewish War. Now, let me start by tying some of the verbiage of Revelation 8 to the historical record of the Roman-Jewish War. In AD 66, while Judea was on fire and full of bloodshed and riot, Rome sent in their 12th legion, to, in addition to thousands of auxiliary legions from neighboring kingdoms. And these troops, as if orchestrated by God, arrived in Jerusalem, listen, in the Jewish month of Tishri, they arrived in the Jewish month of Tishri, the month that begins the Jewish holiday of the Feast of Trumpets. Okay, so why are the trumpets being played in, in Revelation? People say all kinds of things about it. This is why. It's applying to them, and this is what was going on. And so the Roman army enters on the very month that the Feast of Trumpets is celebrated. Quickly, the Feast of Trumpets marked the beginning of 10 days of consecration and repentance before God. God is trying to reach the Jews who are left to repent and change before everything's... He's done, he sent his son, he sent the apostles, he sent the spirit 
to reach them to say, accept him before the end. And this is the final call and the Feast of Trumpets. Literally, they have the trumpets being blown for those, those horns. And it's to call them to repentance. That's what the Feast of Trumpets was about. And it's one of the seven Jewish feasts or festival appointed by the Lord that took place in the autumn. The Feast of Trumpets begins on the first day at the new moon of the seventh month. We still call it Rosh Hashanah today. So you may hear futurists talk about the Rosh Hashanah tie into Jesus coming back and destroying the cosmos instead of Jesus coming back for his own and destroying the earth. Um, it comes from the command in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29 for them to blow those trumpets. It marks the beginning of the year, like businesses have fiscal years versus calendar years. So the Feast of Trumpets marked the first year of the Jewish calendar. And this is when Rome entered in. During the celebration, no kind of work could be performed. Burnt offerings, sin offerings were offered up before the Lord. Uh, in Leviticus, the words trumpet blasts are translated from the Hebrew word teruah, and it means blowing through, and apparently something called a shofar. I've, I've heard people talk about the shofar. It's those long horns, and when you blow them, uh, according to Psalms 81.3, it was blown to show that something new is beginning, something, a change is happening, as in repentance. Jewish tradition indicates that both the ram's horn and the priests had silver horns, too, were blown during the time of the Feast of Trumpets. Now, this is an important feast for several reasons. Uh, first, listen to this. The Feast of Trumpets for the Jews, it, um, it commemorated the harvest. Agricultural Harvest Festival. That's what it also uh, uh, initiated. So remember Jesus said, the harvest is great laborers few. He's talking about this time when there is going to be the final harvest of his people. This is so perfectly consistent with reaching the house of Israel with the good news and the ending of that harvest altogether when it's going to be over and the burning of the fields. Also, the day of atonement fell on the 10th day of the month. And that's when the festival of booths began. The blowing of the trumpets on the first day of the month heralded a solemn time of preparation for the Day of Atonement. And it was called a preparation for the days, 10 days of repentance. The festivals are a whole thing. And, and uh, so the trumpet sound was an alarm of sorts and could be understood by us to call people to be prepared for the harvest, to repent, to know that a change is coming, that's how, that's the biblical explanation of trumpets. And along with the six other festivals of the Lord, they all foreshadowed Christ in his life and his ministry. And that includes his return to gather up his church and to let the punishment for rejecting him occur. The prophets link the blowing of trumpets to a future day of judgment. This sounds like it's something in Revelation. Listen to this passage. It's in Joel 2.1 and Zephaniah 1.14.16. Listen to what it says way back in the Old Testament. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. 
Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. That ties his coming and the blowing of trumpets to uh, how it's used in Revelation and how the word trumpet is used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Lord's second coming will be accompanied by the sound of a trumpet. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, and I, we read this this morning because we covered first part of 1 Corinthians 15, but Paul is talking about the resurrection, okay? And after doing so, he says something really interesting. Remember, it's written in an epistle to believers then. Paul says this to them then. When they read it, they're going to believe Paul's words or they're going to say, I don't believe Paul's words. Okay? This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I show you, readers of this epistle of Corinthians, a mystery. Okay? And he's going to now share with them, the readers of that epistle, a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. So Paul brings in the blowing of trumpets here, and he ties it to people not dying who are alive when Christ returns, but people being changed in the twinkling of an eye and being part of his heavenly kingdom through that change. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, again, if there is someone reading that back in the church at Corinth and they get this epistle and everyone gathers around, they say, what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying to us? And, and he says, behold, I'm going to show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. They're going to say, yeah, yeah, that's coming. Or they're going to say, nah, it doesn't apply to us. It applied to them. And so Paul was literally talking about that time when it was going to occur. I emphatically reassert that Paul was writing to believers then and there and that for this epistle to be true, what he said in verses 51 and 52 had to have happened. That the mystery was that they would be changed in the twinkling of an eye, or else everything he said was wrong, in my opinion. But he wasn't wrong. Paul wasn't wrong, the apostles weren't wrong, Jesus wasn't wrong, the Bible's not wrong, Revelation's not wrong, they're all correct, and all their assumptions are dead on. So, the mystery of what he said showed them that they wouldn't all die, but some of them would be changed in the twink, or that all of them would be changed, some in the twinkling of an eye. Therefore, we know that the contents of the seven trumpets and all that they described have direct application to the seven churches in Revelation and that day and age and those people and Jerusalem and its destruction and not to us. They do not have an application to us. Do we hear trumpets when we die, when we're called to? Maybe, I don't know. Is there some kind of spiritual application from heaven? Who knows? But I can tell you from, from this, the historical application is to them. And if you can get around that, you're going to be so much more liberated and understanding the Word of God. So, adding direct fuel to the fire, Paul wrote also in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And he said something very similar. Uh, and remember, he wrote that to the church at Thessalonica. He wrote them an epistle. This is what he said to them in his epistle that they read. But I would not have you be ignorant. I don't want you believers in Thessalonica to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, concerning our people who have died. He says that you sorrow not. 
Don't be mourning over those who have died, not even as others which have no hope. Okay, you have a hope in the resurrection. You have a hope in being saved. Don't mourn and weep over those who have died. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Don't mourn over them that have passed who are in our midst. God's going to bring them with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. This is an epistle to the Thessalonica believers. And he says, we who are alive unto the coming of the Lord. Now, either that's a possibility or it's not. And if it's not, why does he say it? And you know what the scholars today say? They say, because Paul was wrong. Well, if Paul was wrong, I, I don't, I, why read anything else? Come on. Paul was either right or he was, or he was not. For Paul to write this implies some would be alive at the coming of the Lord. And, or again, Paul would have been wrong. Then he adds, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive reading that epistle, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Those who have died with us are coming back with him, and we who are alive at this time, we're going to be caught up with them in the air. Today, a futurist called that the rapture. We're waiting for our rapture to take us up, right? Well, Paul says here, we who are here on earth when that happens, we will be taken up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, each of the judgments in Revelations chapter 8 and 9 are signaled by a trumpet, each one. And just as the shofar, the horn blown by a Jewish nation, to turn their attention to the Lord, to prepare them for change, to call them to repentance, on the day of atonement, so will the trump of God call all to heaven, as it were, and warn everyone there he's coming in heaven. This is now going to happen. God is revealing it to us. I don't have my Bible, don't I? I want to read something. Uh, the first two verses in Revelation are this is God the Father's revelation to his son. We, we have the revelation when Jesus said that the Son of Man doesn't know the hour of the day. We now know the hour of the day by, it. We, we know the signs by and through what the Father gives to the Son there in Revelation, right? So the shofar is in heaven announcing. And, and so verses 1 through 6 here in chapter 8 are all occurring in heaven. And each time, and we're going to begin at verse 7, when someone blows, when the angel blows that trumpet, new things are unleashed on the Gehei. New things are unleashed on the earth. Remember, this was called the Day of Judgment in ancient Israel. And it is on this day, on the Day of Judgment, that a trumpet sounds and the, that the final judgment is coming. This is talked about in Leviticus 23:24 and Numbers 29:1. That when those trumps sound, that means the Day of Judgment is here. Really important to know that trumpets, trumpets were used in the ancient Hebrew world uh, the modern Hebrew world of that day, New Testament times, the Roman military used trumpets and to rally their troops. In fact, all seven of the plagues that we're going to read about were announced by a literal, audible trumpet sounding in heaven. 
And remember, John is seen into heaven. That's where the first seven verses are taking place here in chapter 8. So the symbolic use of trumpets in Revelation 8 was also literal in that the Romans were probably blowing trumpets too, and they were signaling, this is, let's start this, and so this will fall down, and let's start that. Hard to get more on the nose than that when it comes to an interpretation, a historical interpretation of Revelation. I mean, we have the Bible supporting it. We have trumpets used by the Romans supporting it. We have all of it. Uh, I mean, it's the harvest. It's the end. Uh, so it says, let's read verse 1. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Um, many people, futurists, uh, eschatology say, we're in that silent period now. It started way back when. And we're waiting. This is the time of the Gentiles. And God is making the harvest of the human race. And when the last Gentile converts by the Spirit, then we are going to initiate the end of all things. Um, the interesting thing is that Josephus, he tells us of a very interesting event. Remember, he's following around and writing what he sees. That happened in 66 AD. And according to what he said, I think we are able to combine the heavenly events of verses 1, 2, and 3 in Revelation 8. And we can see that they were supernaturally mirrored, what John was seeing and what Josephus recorded. For instance, this is a quote. Josephus says, On the eighth day of the month of Nisan, and at the ninth hour of the night, so great a light shone round the altar and the holy house that it appeared to be bright daytime which lasted a half an hour. That's a quote from Josephus. He doesn't have access to the book of Revelation. He, he wouldn't even quote it. Why would he? He's not even a, a Christian. And he says, a half an hour, we had light around the temple at 9 p.m. at night, and it's shown all around there. That's radical, right? And we have a secular support for what is said in verse 1 of chapter 8. Again, historical little report fundamentally, fundamentally reflects the first verse in 8. Apparently, the period of light shone for a half an hour, and it, what, how I would say, it could be wrong here, verses 2 and 3 in Revelation 8 are occurring in heaven. So, on, in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, we read, um, when he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Verse 2, John says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So John has seen these things happening in heaven. Down on earth, Josephus is saying we have a half an hour space of time where the, where the temple was lit up. And we have Rome invading, and we have Jesus saying this is what it's going to look like, and we have the apostles warning this is going to happen. So here we're brought back when he says that he was given instance to offer which, with excuse me, the prayer of the saints. Back in Revelation chapter 6, we read the, uh, that the prayers of the saints that were gathered around the throne of God were asking God, when are you going to give justice for our deaths. These were the martyrs. And they were praying, when will you avenge our deaths? And we talked about what that meant back in Revelation chapter 6. 
Well, the prayers are mentioned in, uh, by Jesus in Luke chapter 18. He said, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Revelation said that they're gathered around the altar and their prayers are offered up day and night. The martyrs ask him, when are you going to avenge our deaths? So will he keep putting them off, Jesus says? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So we have now Jesus explaining something, and he says the prayers of those who have been martyred and abused are going up to God, and they're saying, when will you avenge our death? And we have now here in Revelation 8, with the unveiling of the seven trumpets, we have uh, the incense being offered by one angel, and it's going up with the prayers of those saints. So it's a sweet savor to God's nose. It's now time for them to get their revenge, is how I would uh, interpret that. And... Uh, Back in chapter 6, uh, it said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This was the prayer that was being offered up back in Revelation chapter 6. So, uh, verse 5 and 6. The angel took the censer, filled it with a fire from the altar, hurled it to the Gehei, and there came, you ready, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. So we have one angel, he takes and he throws down fire from the altar, hurls it from the altar, and we hear peals. I, I, I think that's like rounds of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Well, ask yourself, going back in biblical history, is there, what is perhaps the first place where we read about thunder and lightnings and earthquakes? and smoke, and fire, and vapors. Do you remember? It's back in Genesis. I mean, excuse me, Exodus. Moses is when he goes up to uh, Sinai. And, and what happened? The children of Israel down there watching, and what did they see? They saw stuff that scared the heck out of them. And it was thunder, and lightning, and smoke, and vapors, and, 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 and all this stuff. And they were so terrified, and, and even in Hebrews it says that, that Moses was terrified, okay? So we come to some fascinating connections and fulfillments of what's happening now at the end of time with what happened back in uh, Scripture with the nation of Israel. So Exodus 19, 16 says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that they were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain, the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that were in the camp trembled. Verse 19, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. We have God coming down to Moses with the law. We have God coming down to, to visit those people for the last time. And so the, when the angel in heaven throws down the fiery thing, it causes peals of sound to come forward, that thunder, lightning, earthquakes, etc. Psalms 18, 6 through 14 tells us that when God comes, he rides on a cloud of glory. Uh, when the angel at the altar hurls the burning censer to the ground and it causes fire and smoke and thunder and rumblings and lightning and earthquake, all signs 
of the presence of God, similar to signs of God is with Moses up in Sinai. In fact, Psalms 18, 6 to 14, listen to the verbiage here in the book of Psalms. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook, and they trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. There's that riding in on the clouds. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of his brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy with great bolts of lightning. He routed them. That's the same language that we've gotten in Genesis. It's the same language that Jesus used to describe the end of all things in Matthew 24. And it's the same language we're going to get when we start dissecting the seven trumpets. It's all the same. God is coming back to visit his judgment upon the people. So all interconnected. Hang with me. Not only does fire and smoke and earthquake mentioned in verse 5 imply God's presence on the glory cloud as, as Psalms 18, uh, six talks about. Uh, when Revelation 8.5 mentioned fire, smoke, thunder, rumblings, lightning, and an earthquake, it's before the sounding of the seven trumpets. And this suggests that God, more specifically Christ, was to come in the clouds with judgment and that was going to be initiating the Roman Jewish war. That he, before the vials and before all the trumpets are sounded, God is coming with judgment and his, he's going to get his judgment through the armies of the Romans. I would see it that way. Uh, one thing I've never heard from a preterist position or discussed in scripture is why in Exodus and the Psalm and Revelation and other places in scripture, why does God's presence among men or on earth or in earth uh, create earthquakes and lightning and thunder and rumblings, etc.? cetera? Uh, why is that indicative of his presence? Uh, I don't ever hear it talked about. Surely they show power. And surely to us, the power that they show shows the ability to take life. It's terrifying. Uh, but so it seems that that's certainly a part of it, but we also know lightning around the throne of God in heaven. John sees lightning around the throne of God in heaven, and so maybe that was representational. But I personally believe that there's a reason why when God rides in on his cloud that the mountains literally shake and the trees catch on fire and there's smoke and darkness and lightning and things like that. Um, the two, it seems, this is hypothecation, God, who is spirit, who is consuming fire, who is love, God and the material world, they don't mix. And when he comes, there is, the material world is reacting to his presence in a way that is, just, and that's why Christ is our mediator. Uh, he came down to mediate between us and God, the consuming fire. And when God comes and makes that appearance, man, things start going really badly because 
you know, we have to ask, what did Sinai do that would insult God? I don't think Sinai did anything, the mountain. I just think in the presence of God, anything material begins to get shaken and, 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 and decomposes, so to speak. Many people think that he's angry in his approach. And uh, the longer I live, the more I see God as a force that is... Flesh and blood cannot inherit his kingdom. Uh, paper and computers and poetry of men in our books doesn't enter into his kingdom. I think they would be just dissolved instantly in his presence. Anything, all things, whatever it is alien to God's realm will be destroyed. It seems like it has to be, not because he's angry. It's just that that's what he is. And in the presence of it, things get really shaken here. So. Sinai burned and glowed and rocked with an earthquake. Uh, I think it was merely because the presence of God was, was there. And this leads to an all familiar point we talk about here in campus, which is discussed in Hebrews chapter 12. And this brings all the shaking and revelation and lightnings and thunder and all that, and all the shaking and lightnings and thunder and earthquakes of Genesis right into play. Because this, the writer of Hebrews tells us what that means to us. See, this is one of the only instances where we are actually given what it's going to look like for us. That once when God came, things were shaken and burning and smoking and terrifying. But someday that was all going to change. So go with me, dang it, to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And follow with me. Because these passages are read and not really read, heard. The writer says to believers, you are not come unto a mount that might be touched. You aren't coming to a temple in Jerusalem. You're not coming to a mountain like Sinai that can be touched that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempests, and the sound of a trumpet, this ties it in too, and the voice of words, listen, which voice they that heard caused them to ask that the word should not be spoken anymore. What he's talking about is when Moses went to the mountain Sinai, he said they, he saw tempests and blackness burned with fire, darkness, and the sound of a trumpet. And the people heard voices. And what did the people say? We don't want to hear them anymore. Don't give us, we don't want to hear that. Why? Because the very voice of God will shake us to the dust. I mean, terrifying, right? So, and, and, and then it says in verse 20, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, Sinai, it would be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight on Sinai that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Okay? So we're talking about, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, that's what, what it was like then. But that's not you. Ready? The writer says that this was not them. At verse 22, he explains what was them. He says, but you, see that, but you, are come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, where the law was given. 
you're coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. Where is it? Ah, it's, it's, it's him. It's there. The city of the living God is no longer Jerusalem. It's no longer brick and mortar. It's no longer these, these, these stones that are going to be taken down by the Romans. You are come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see that? Not a material Jerusalem. That material Jerusalem was destroyed. Forget about it. I mean, as our allies, as a nation, all that, fine, whatever you want to do, I, whatever. But don't believe that it has to, it ties, because we have come, we, to the believers, the writer of Hebrews says, we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels, to an, a general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. We've come to a completely new covenant. He adds at verse 25, this, we, three more verse, four more verses, hang with me, and it will come together in your mind. I ask God, help us. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they, referring to them back at, at Sinai, escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth, that means Moses, if they didn't escape judgment, who refused Moses on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. All right? Whose voice then, back in Sinai, shook the earth. But now, see the difference? He has promised, saying, listen, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. So the writer of Hebrews says, one more time, he shook, he, he shook Sinai. When Jesus died, there was darkness, and, 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 and there was these signs that were from heaven and all this. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, listen, we're not part of that Sinai thing anymore, but God has said, one more time, I'm shaking things up. And it's not just going to be on earth. My voice, everything is going to shake the foundation of heaven. Ready? He's going to explain why. And this word, this is a tough uh, uh, passage. Yet once more, when he says once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made. The removing of things that are made that can be shaken, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Can Jerusalem today over in Israel be shaken? It is done. It's been shaken. It's already happened. Can a pastor, can your faith, can all sorts of things be shaken that are material? Can brick and mortar churches, can the finances of a church and, and, and can, a, can a pastor have an affair and, and can the Catholic church lead millions astray? All of it shaken, shaken, shaken. But God here says once more, I'm going to shake not only the earth, which he did in Jerusalem, with the trumpets that we're going to read about, but he said also heaven, so that anything that can be shaken will be shaken and will not remain. 
That is how we have our hope in Christ Jesus, and we don't have to worry about the brick and mortar and the material, and we don't have to worry about all those things. We don't place our trust in a man. We don't place our trust in that book. We place our trust in Christ, and the book reveals him to us. You see the difference? So we cannot be shaken again when your faith is on him. It can't happen. You are on the firmest rock there has ever been. But if you stand on religion for your rock, you are going to get shaken. And that was never part of God's plan. So let me read that again. And his word yet once more signified the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, anything that's made, and that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Listen, last two verses. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Trust that. You belong to a kingdom that cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's leave it off there, and we'll get into the seven trumpets next week. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. And don't cut me off. Anybody, comments, question? Wendy has the microphone. Don't be shy. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We seek to understand it from your word. Let it interpret it by your spirit. And we pray that we will look to you, oh, the author and finisher of our faith, our only access to the invisible God. Lord Jesus, strengthen us in our walk and help us to um, be humble about the things that we are learning. Let us be humble about our sin nature and realize it's never going to get us there, that we are a broken people in our flesh. That is a shakable thing. So we don't put our faith in the things of the flesh, but in the things of the spirit, which cannot be moved. Help us to make that focus this week, next month, and in the years to come until we meet you again. Lord, we pray for those who are on our list, for Jody Jones, and that her health and spirit will be uh, healed. She'll be healed. For Rachel, that she will have the strength to deal with family issues. For Amanda, that her body and spirit will be healed as she withdraws from addiction. Please reveal herself. We pray for Diana and for Matt, both who have broken their legs this past week. And uh, we pray that you will heal them and help them and help them to recover so that they can carry on with the work that you have for them. We pray for Patrick's mom, Suzanne, and her health. Patrick's brother, Paul, that he will come to know the Lord Jesus in his life. We, uh, we pray for our brother and his uh, uh, group tomorrow night, that people in their flesh uh, who have addictions will be able to understand what you have for them and that you will bless Justin in his ability to lead this uh, group, these people, and help them to see you in the mix and understand that you are that freedom and to do it with your wisdom and your love. We pray for those, and we actually thank you, Lord, for those who have had healings and success and people who have come back uh, to health, people who have returned to faith, who have uh, stepped aside waywardly and chosen other paths that you're stepping and working in their lives. And we just pray that you'll send us forth now, launching us into the rest of the week as Christians and help us to remember that uh, we are part of a kingdom that can't be moved. And to rejoice in that fact, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. 